Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, Ken Cobb visits us to talk about his new book, Moral Wages, The Emotional Dilemmas of Victim Advocacy and Counseling. In it, he explores the inner lives of professionals and staffers who work to serve domestic violence victims at an organization called SAFE. We discuss the system of emotional rewards that keep advocacy organizations like SAFE running, as well as some of the problems it creates for clients and staff alike. Ken is an assistant professor of sociology at Furman University in South Carolina. Ken Cobb, welcome to Office Hours. (laughs) Thank you. So Moral Wages is a very unique book, I think, in part because it's one of the first studies to examine the emotional experiences and identities of those people who serve domestic violence and sexual assault victims. But it's also an important example of a kind of identity formation that goes on in many lines of work to some degree or another. Could you start by telling us a little bit about the site you've researched and why you chose it to illustrate the concept of a moral wage? Well, uh, the site that I, where I did my research was an agency that assists victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And working with victims is uh, it's selfless work. We don't pay people who work with victims very much, uh, at least not as much as they deserve, considering the emotional strain of their work. Uh, and so that invites an important question of why, why do they do it? Why do they do uh, what they do? Um, they're willing to put more into their work uh, then what they get out of it, and, and when I say get out of it in sort of extrinsic rewards like pay or power or prestige, um, and that question of why people uh, would forego these kinds of extrinsic rewards or, or downplay them as in terms of importance of, of why they do what they do has always interested me. I, um, during my grad school days, I, uh, I took two and a half years off. I joined the Peace Corps. I was a beekeeper in Paraguay in South America. And uh, that's a very rewarding work. It, it, it feels good. I mean, it, and it has some extrinsic benefits to it in terms of they might be deferred in terms of they look good on a resume and I acquire some skills. Um, but in the middle of it, when you're really sort of knee deep in it, figuratively and <laughs> literally, uh, the, uh, there's some moments of doubt. You know, why, why am I doing this? Why am I out here? Why, uh, why am I putting up with this? And, um, and, but at the end of the day, you know, in, in most cases, uh, it did make sense. You know, the, the pay wasn't all that great, uh, the living allowance. And, uh, but it, I felt good about it. I felt good about doing good. I felt good about helping others, about doing what I saw as the right thing. And, um, and so as long as I was able to feel good about it, you know, that I felt like I was helping, then, uh, everything kind of made sense. It fell in the line. I could get up day after day and, and do this kind of stuff. But not every day felt good. Not every day I was completely content with um, what I was doing or the, the whole mission or whether or not this is ultimately the most sustainable way to help. And uh, these kinds of questions, uh, you know, they're, they're little in terms of I'm just one person asking them, but they're in some ways big existential questions of why I do this kind of stuff. If it's difficult and I'm not feeling good about it at the moment because the people I'm trying to help maybe they weren't very nice to me one day or um, maybe I committed some faux pas and I didn't know about it and I embarrassed myself and I felt stupid. But um, in those moments of frustration, uh, the bargain of 
putting up with the difficult conditions for sort of these intrinsic rewards of being able to feel good about doing good, uh, that, that bargain broke down. And so this site that I studied is one where uh, people go into it for, for many selfless and virtuous reasons. They want to help others. They, they believe in, in a movement. They want to fight violence against women. Um, so they, they're doing something that they see as bigger than just themselves. Um, but still, in order to do it, um, they have to accomplish everyday interactions. It's, it's a daily grind. And so these, these moments of doubt and these can be frustrating, um, but they can be offset by moments of real elation. They can feel really good about sometimes even the, the smallest little things. Um, so people's being the capacity of people to extract positive meaning from situations that we wouldn't expect them to, I think helps explain um, a lot more about work than, than just this one setting. And so that, that's always been interesting uh, to me, and um, I think that's, that's how I got into it. Hmm. So the way that you describe moral wages in the book makes them sound like more than just passing emotional responses to work well done, right? They're actually something really central to the personal identities of the folks who work at this organization. To help us understand what that means, could you tell us a little bit more about how sociologists and you in particular view the relationship between work and what we're calling identity? Yeah, well, I, I think my primary subfield coming into this I'm a sociologist of emotion, I'm a sociologist of identity, I'm a symbolic interactionist. Uh, so I'm not necessarily approaching it from the traditional work and occupations frame. Uh, instead, what I, I, I do think I can add to some of those conversations, but to give you a sense of where I'm coming from, I think the, um, the concept that, that sparked my interest at the beginning was what uh, Everett Hughes calls dirty work. Okay, dirty work is basically a work that needs to be done, but not, the, but not work that needs to be done, but that not everyone is willing to do. Okay, and when he used the term, he was really talking about physically dirty work, We're talking about, you know, grease stains and garbage stains and just what we normally think of as dreary jobs that uh, really leave um, marks. Okay, and so what I, what I try and add to that uh, discussion is what I call uh, moral dirty work um, and work that leaves stains but not necessarily visible ones. And so the workers that I study, victim advocates and counselors, you know, they they undergo a lot of everyday hardship, talking to clients, talking about really painful experiences, sometimes past experiences, sometimes fear of future and imminent experiences. Um, that can be pretty traumatic. And that type of painful interaction can, can leave a mark, uh, but not one that comes out in the wash. And how, how do they deal with that? Um, why would they be willing to, to do that kind of work? And what makes it so hard is that if they had physical scars, if they had visible marks, then everyone would be able to see what they were going through. But since those emotional injuries are in large part hidden and in many ways private and invisible because of confidentiality constraints, they can't even talk about them many, most of the time. Um, it's hard for them to get credit or recognition or sympathy okay, from outsiders, people who don't know what they do. And so um, this strain, this hardship, okay, and, and in relation to what I talked about earlier about the lack of extrinsic rewards they get, uh, really renders the, the traditional uh, 
assumption about sort of rational choice or cost-benefit analyses that workers undergo uh, at the workplace, it really sort of sets that to the side. Okay, sociologists of work and occupations don't really rely on those rational choice models as heavily anymore. Um, instead, uh, they acknowledge that workplace decisions are complex, uh, they're contingent, they're grounded in the context of the situation. Um, and so what I'm trying to do is situate my, my, this type of work, okay, this type of se selfish, what I call moral dirty work, um, in relation to other kinds of jobs to help make sense of why these workers undergo this strain voluntarily um, and in some cases in enthusiastically, looking out for really difficult opportunities, um, willing to undergo really difficult situations when they're offered opportunities to, to close early, they stay late, when they're offered opportunities to deny services because of, you know, maybe they lost some staff positions, they turn it down and they, and they choose to work extra hours. Um, they, they want it, they want to help, but to, to help sometimes requires working even harder and harder. Um, but what makes it hard makes it feel good. And so this is the moral wage bargain uh, in many ways that they're, um, they're voluntarily accepting. Okay, in exchange for this really hard work, they get to feel good about themselves, about their mission, about their organization. And so these types of workplace decisions um, help explain how some types of jobs, you know, the monetary benefit isn't the only variable, okay, that people are invested in their jobs in ways that to even question the philosophy of their organization or the policies is to question themselves. They signed up to help clients this way, uh, to be the, the sympathizers of last resort. So in a sense, if they complain about their job, they're complaining about who they are, okay, who they've always claimed to be. And then they lose that anchor of their identity that helps situate them in relations to other people that they know and other identities and other roles. Okay, so um, it helps the contribution I, I like to make is that in some jobs, uh, what keeps things going is that workers become so invested in their work, okay, not just because of what they're doing, it's that the work defines who they are. Hmm. Now we're talking about uh, counselors and victim advocates at SAFE kind of together right now, but one of the points that I really appreciated in Moral Wages comes out when you actually make a distinction between those two different types of workers, because it shows how moral wages operate differently when other kinds of rewards are available on the job. So could you tell us a little bit about that distinction that you made? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I say, I often use them together in a sentence, you know, advocates and counselors for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, victim advocates and counselors. Um, but people who are, at least in the agency where I was, sometimes the, the terms vary by different agency. But um, in these types of agencies, there's a pretty clear distinction between those who have professional credentials, okay? In this case, we can think of, uh, master's in social work or a master's in counseling or family therapy and those um, who sometimes have bachelor's degrees and sometimes not okay um, and come into this uh, type of work they're trained largely on the job um, and they have more of a whereas the professionals have these long very structured inst in educational institutions, their trainings, they have practicums, they have internships, uh, the counselors do. The advocates, on the other hand, it's much more of sort of a trial by fire or a sink or swim. These are the terms that they used. And uh, there was a difference in pay, okay, not that, not that much, 
counselors, they have professional degrees, so they earn a little bit more. Um, advocates don't have professional degrees and they earn a little bit less. Um, they have very different types of work within the agency. And, and my agency was almost, uh, it was, the metaphor I use is upstairs and downstairs. Uh, downstairs, the advocates worked. They processed the walk-in clients. Their job was highly unpredictable, okay? The crisis hotline can ring at any time. 4.59, you know, on a Friday afternoon, somebody can knock on the door. And it's their job uh, to talk to them, to hear their story, to find out, to assess their imminent risk, if there's any real danger that they're in at that very moment, if in what they call is uh, a crisis assessment, okay? Is the client still in crisis mode? Okay, crisis, if they're in crisis, that means they haven't had their primary needs of uh, food and shelter and security met, okay? So their their job is to get clients out of this crisis mode. It's a very much of a problem-solving, um, very much in flux type of uh, work. Upstairs, the counselors, um, they don't deal with clients in crisis. So counselors had the option of talking with clients and if in their opinion they saw that clients were still in crisis or had somehow um, developed some newfound fears or some new facts that emerged, they could send the clients back downstairs to the advocates okay, to start the process all over again. Um, what this meant was that the, the counselors dealt with clients that had their their primary immediate needs met, okay? Um, the counselors had a very predictable work schedule. They scheduled appointments. They had specific times when they would meet and end those meetings with clients. Um, and they had, uh, they had professional tools in their arsenal to help, okay? And, and to think about uh, the way they're helping clients that the advocates didn't. So, for example, the counselors had uh, therapeutic jargon, okay? Uh, behavioral uh, memory analysis and uh, cognitive memory repair and they had uh, they had gone through training they had textbook terminology that they could use to explain why clients were experiencing what they were experiencing uh, what they could do to help them and uh, so if any type anything went wrong during the interaction okay let's say they the counselor met with a client and the client got upset um, the, the counselor could sort of take solace in the fact that they had done the, the best practice. They had gone through the textbook procedure of how to help. Uh, the advocates, on the other hand, didn't have this kind of jargon or these uh, specific types of skills and training to explain uh, what their clients were going through, um, how best to help them. Instead, they, they adopted a much more uh, personal relationship with their clients. They defined su a successful client interaction as one where uh, the client left uh, feeling good about it or feeling empowered by this, uh, by just talking. The counselors also employed this empowerment philosophy, but um, they also had some therapeutic obligations of uh, how to help clients and um, what they thought was best and what they thought was, was healthy for them. And so in terms of moral wages, what this means is that the advocates, their job was much more unpredictable. Uh, their clients in crisis mode were much more difficult uh, to interact with, okay? It was a, a rushed, sort of urgent sense of urgency. Um, the counselors upstairs recognized this. You know, they would constantly say things like, I can't do what the advocates do. I, you know, that's just a really tough job. They're really on the front lines of the social problem that is violence against women. Um, the counselors, it's not that their job was easy. They had a really, they dealt with really difficult cases. 
Um, but they can also take pride in the difficulty of their work in many ways because of what they were foregoing by working at this agency. They had professional degrees. They saw themselves as having options. Um, they had colleagues in private practice that they saw as, you know, they kind of viewed in terms of a greener pastures um, relationship. Instead, what they could, they saw their job as, well, I'm foregoing those benefits. I'm foregoing um, the greener pastures elsewhere, and I can take pride in that. So that, in a sense, that even though we can think of moral wages as the amount that you earn based upon how difficult your work is, uh, the harder it is, the better you feel when you when you when you've done a job when you've done the job well. Okay, you would think that well, the less hard it is, okay, would make moral wages impossible to earn. Okay, it would be impossible to earn those sort of positive feelings and sense of satisfaction that come with seeing yourself as a caring and compassionate person. Okay, if your job is super easy or you get paid tons of money. Okay. Uh, but even though they were getting paid relatively more, their reference group was their colleagues in private practice who were making even more than them outside the agency. Okay. So everyone got a sense of feeling, uh, was able to define their work as difficult, more difficult than others, uh, that they were taking on risks that others were willingly choosing uh, not to experience, that they were willing to, um, to take the tough path. And so uh, credentials in some ways help define how much money you make. And so I try and set out sort of these axes of comparison that the more money you make, uh, the harder it is to earn moral wages. Well, that's, that's true in some cases, um, but not in all. Okay, There's even some people who make lots and lots of money who are still able to see themselves as uh, really caring and compassionate people. You can think of uh, Doctors Without Borders or CEOs of charitable organizations. Um, they're making fine salaries, uh, but still uh, they can see themselves as making a sacrifice because if they were to go into work that was less defined by helping others, by its virtuosity or its selflessness, that they could make more money elsewhere. Well, this may seem like a very obvious question then, but um, you know, foregoing those sort of normal structural rewards like a salary, um, it's not. it doesn't come without negative consequences, and, and you write about a few of those in the book. Um, so just to lay those out, what, what are the negative consequences of a service system that relies on moral wages? Well, I try to argue in the book that this organization and organizations like it effectively run on the good feelings that workers are able to extract from them for themselves. But in the long term, this strategy of relying on workers to, in a sense, pay themselves in good feelings that they find for themselves is that it denies them any opportunity to complain. It on the individual level and on the organizational level, it in discursively denies them the opportunity to ask for more. Okay, so if you're when these advocates and counselors would talk to others, friends and family, about what they did, a lot of the time, you know, people didn't really actually want to talk to them about it because it's a difficult concept, topic. Uh, but when they could, their friends and families, they, they would earn admiration and respect. Okay. And that admiration and respect was contingent upon how hard their work was. And in part, what made their work so difficult was that they weren't getting paid all that much for it. So what if they start complaining? and asking for raises, that they start asking for more, okay? The admiration and the respect that they get from others, 
okay, wow, this is a really hard job. I can't believe you do it. You must really feel for these clients so much, okay? When you ask for more, that invites the biting question of, well, wait a second. I thought this was about the victims. I thought you really weren't in it for the money. Is it really just about the money? Okay, those kinds of questions start to um, sort of chip away at the moral identity of people engaged in these systems, these moral wage systems. On an organizational level, okay, their capacity to make do, to persevere. So the, the agency that I study had undergone budget cuts, they had lost some staff positions, um, they were generally not able to keep up with the demand for their services. Um, so when offered the opportunity to, to just cut their hours, the staff said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to work even harder. We'll make up, we'll just, we'll make do, we'll find a way. Okay. And so after six months, that, that became the new normal. And so imagine when they go to new funding providers and they ask, well, we've, we've been under siege and we've managed to just keep our head above water. Well, if you've been able to keep your head above water and meet the demand of the community so far, then maybe you don't need it anymore. And so this rhetorically uh, disarms them of any opportunity uh, to complain, uh, to disagree. Uh, when you're so invested in your work and, and that not only that you, you like it, but that you want to like it. Okay, to complain about your work is to complain about yourself. To complain about your organization is to complain against the movement. And so um, I do think that it's, it's an understandable strategy to ask workers to make do, to, to find meaning in really difficult work. Uh, but it can be problematic in the long run because uh, when it comes time to complain, uh, it's even successful or not, okay, it's going to cut into um, their capacity to frame themselves and their work as virtuous and selfless. Interestingly, um, it doesn't seem like the workers at SAFE earn their moral wages by intervening directly in abusive situations, right? Uh, instead, you show that they subscribe very sincerely to an ethic of victim empowerment. Could you explain that strategy and how it worked in concert with the moral wage concept? Mm -hmm. Well, SAFE is an acronym for the organization. And uh, like many organizations uh, that assist victims of domestic violence and sexual assault today, they ascribe to what they call an empowerment philosophy. Uh, this is deeply rooted uh, long-term in the social movement of violence against, uh, to combat violence against women. Um, some listeners will recognize the terms, uh, or the term, the Duluth model, okay? These are community-coordinated strategies uh, to bring, to combat these problems, to narrow, to help victims in ways that they haven't been helped before, okay? This empowerment philosophy largely grew out of a response to the shortcomings of institutions that traditionally help victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. So victims, if you're, in a, if you're a victim in whatever way, okay, let's say you get in a car crash, um, where do you go? Okay, you go to medical institutions. Um, if someone has wronged you, you go to the criminal justice system for help. Um, if you can't work and you need help, you might go to some state-run bureaucratic social service agency. Okay, these are the institutions that traditionally help all types of victims, including victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, the critique of these agencies, and they've gotten better over the years, to be sure, but 
um, 20, 30 years ago, um, these agencies were pretty heavy-handed, and they still are in, in some ways, but again, they're getting better. But um, you can think of cops being unsympathetic to victims, lawyers telling victims what to do, uh, doctors um, making behavioral changes contingent upon offering assistance, uh, bureaucratic social service agencies being overworked and overrun and just being not equipped to attend to the uh, emotional needs of their clientele. Um, places like SAFE, agencies that assist victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, rape crisis centers, battered women's shelters, um, they saw themselves as different. Okay, They were going to offer a different kind of service. They were going to offer a service where victims could come and not be judged, where victims could come and not be told that they were wrong, where victims could come and not be told what to do. Okay, Instead, um, they were going to be empowered. Okay, This is their empowerment philosophy. And so the empowerment philosophy um, reframes what it means to succeed in a client interaction. And so what they ended up doing, what I found in the book, is that they found this very subtle means of getting clients to change their behavior, what I call steering in the book, um, and without directly telling them what to do. They could frame options for them in such a way that would get them to choose A, B, or C uh, without telling them directly to choose A, B, or C. Now, some people might read this and, and see them as, well, they're just being manipulative and they're just adopting these same principles of directive coercion. I, I don't really agree with that. I mean, I really, I watch these interactions. I do think they really did have the best interests of clients at heart. It's just uh, when you have a philosophy that is defined in opposition to the actions of other institutions, then you deny yourself the ability to use any of the tools, the good tools that some of these other institutions have. And so they really set them some very high standards for themselves in terms of how directive they could be with clients. Um, and these, when they were less directive and clients made good decisions, uh, then they earned the moral wages and they felt really good about what they were doing. Um, the risk of that is that sometimes clients didn't always make decisions that they agreed with and it became very difficult to voice their disagreement or get them to walk away from the cliff, okay, if they saw they were heading that way. Mm. So what if they did head that way? I mean, how would unusual or, or difficult clients especially problematize how safe staff viewed their work? Um, well, they did have some rules. I mean, if they saw really imminent danger that they were going to do clear harm to themselves or others, uh, that they did leave that within their purview of being able to interview Okay. If they felt a client was suicidal, for example, um, they were actually legally obligated to report things like that. Um, and in the case of really difficult clients, so that in, um, in the difficult clients chapter, I talk about one client uh, named Tammy. And Tammy uh, was very um, hard for them to deal with. Okay. When they first met her, Tammy had undergone some of the most traumatic injuries that any of their clients had ever experienced. Uh, they, there's photos of her in the office and her eyes are completely bloodshot and she's uh, because of as a result of some strangulation that um, it was uh, really shocking evidence okay of how bad it really could be and so uh, Tammy earned an enormous amount of sympathy okay upon arrival at SAFE and people understood what she had gone through and they were willing and ready to forgive her no matter what okay so uh, over time, they started. Tammy started to test their patients a little bit. They had uh, secured for her a scholarship to attend a community college, 
and she uh, went for a little while, but then dropped out. Okay. They understood it. They could explain her actions. You know, they talked amongst themselves. Perhaps her classmates didn't understand, or perhaps her teachers were being uh, insensitive. But then uh, it, they they found out that um, she wanted to move in with a new man that had a really lengthy criminal record and a history of violence against women. So again, in according to their empowerment ethos, they didn't tell her sp specifically, you can't move in with him. They showed her his criminal record. They explained the things that he has done. Um, and But she disagreed, and she decided to move in with him anyway. Okay. Um, at some point, she needed some rent assistance. Okay. And so they gave her a little bit of money. They didn't have very much money to do this, but they gave her some. And then they found out from an undercover sheriff's deputy that she was uh, buying drugs. And so then they're really starting to worry. Okay, this is Tammy's behavior. They not only see as harmful for her, uh, but also as potentially harmful for the organization. Okay, are they enabling bad behavior? Okay, are they going to lose their reputation amongst other assistant district attorneys and cops and judges in their immediate neighborhood? And they really just... They had it. They had. They just cut ties with her. It had gone on so long um, that they just couldn't do it anymore. At, at the very last point, she had she had been arrested and she was in jail, and they just stopped reaching out to her. And and I was really. At first, I was a little shocked. I was a little shocked. I couldn't. As for the sympathizers of last resort, for the people who saw themselves as so caring and compassionate, how could they cut ties with anyone? Okay. Um, but listening to them explain it, um, you know, at some point they just saw themselves as wishing her well, but knowing that the relationship just wasn't going to work. Okay. At some point having her around was starting to destroy the reputation of the organization for the movement as a whole and potentially even enabling her to do even more harm to herself. Okay. So they, they were able to justify it. They did have limits, but besides that, um, in the middle ground, okay, where clients weren't in clear and immediate danger, uh, where they were acting in difficult ways, but not to the extent that Tammy was, these were the ones that provoked these constant everyday dilemmas. Okay, I, I'm meeting with a client, and she skips an appointment. Uh, it makes me frustrated, um, and I want to forgive her. Okay, if I forgive her, um, and she accepts it. Uh, then it brings us closer together, okay? In some ways, difficult behavior can can be a source of uh, healing between the two. It's an opportunity to say for them to say you're sorry and for the service provider to say it's okay, I understand, okay? But if they skip two appointments or three appointments or if they lie once, twice, three times, ten times, um, when they really got to their breaking point, the empowerment philosophy doesn't quite offer them a clear line in the sand for them to explain this much is too much. It's those clients that that reached their breaking points. They they bent them, but they didn't break them. Okay, um, that just caused an awful lot of frustration and consternation and and doubt. And this is the, this is the doubt that hinders the moral wage bargain. Is that if I'm I signed up for this work because I knew it was going to be hard, and it is hard. And now I don't really feel good about it because this client is lying to me or she's using my assistance to do bad things. Well, what am I doing here? Why am, why am I putting up with this? Okay. 
how they manage those dilemmas is really what kept, kept the agency afloat. Uh, finally, Ken, I've got to ask you about researcher positionality because in addition to being a male and in addition to, be, to interacting with staff and clients openly as a researcher, um, you're also studying patterns of emotion, which can appear especially opaque under the researcher's microscope. So uh, did you learn anything about navigating your role in this potentially sensitive field site that you could share with listeners who might be interested in embarking on a similar project of their own for the first time? Yeah, well, you know, I, when I talk to people about my research, I get asked two questions generally. Um, or they tell me two things. Wow, that, you know, that, that agency, that sounds like hard work. I, you know, and um, that it's a lot of respect and admir admiration for advocates and counselors. Okay, whether or not you agree with their mission or their philosophy, uh, people, um, they value others who are willing to sacrifice themselves uh, for the well-being of their clients. But then the second thing that people almost always ask me is, you know, so they come up to me and they say, so what's it like being a guy in an agency like that? Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's in part because when I was there, I, was, I wasn't the only guy. There were other guys there. Um, but none of the advocates and counselors in that office uh, were guys. Um, police, sheriff's deputies would come through. They had some board members. They had some batter intervention facilitators. So I wasn't the only guy there, but a lot of the times I was. And when people ask me that, okay, so what's it like being a guy there? You know, implicit in their, in their question is, you know, how do we know they're telling you the truth? How do we know that, you know, they're not just feeding you some story or they're waiting for you to leave or they don't really trust you or they don't trust men? And so what, what I, if they really are interested, what I tell them is that, um, being a guy really made my research in this setting a lot easier. And the reason for that is that these agencies have been beset with stereotypes of being man-haters, of being feminazis, of generally untrusting of men, um, in ways that these advocates and counselors see as entirely unfair. And the presence of men, myself included, uh, inoculates them against some of those accusations. And so having guys around politically and public relations wise is very helpful for them. Now, not, this doesn't mean that they'll accept any men. There were some really rotten men who tried to weasel their way into the organization. You had abusers who would try and sneak in to find the locations of their ex-partners. You had um, really kind of some creepy guys who showed up and said they wanted to teach uh, self-defense classes when they really had no training to do it. They really just kind of wanted to be around victimized women. Um, and so they were, they were leery of guys. That it, there's no doubt about it. And for self-protective reasons. reasons. But um, if guys pass what I call their, a series of litmus tests, okay, they were welcomed. And uh, they were willing to confer upon men who passed their tests, and myself included, as what I call this progressive merit badge. Sort of this little uh, signifier of virtuosity or of being a sensitive guy or a guy who gets it different from these other guys. And once I had achieved that, uh, earned my progressive merit badge, um, it opened up a lot of access to me. And I was able to hang out and be around them um, for long periods of time. Uh, in, in some ways, you know, I was the only person who really consistently asked them about themselves, uh, what they were feeling, what they were going through. And so my interviews with them in some ways were therapeutic to them 
that not many people wanted to really talk about the hardest parts of their work. Uh, their friends and family wanted to be supportive, but they shied away from the really, really hard stuff. And uh, so that in a sense, uh, once I was able to gain access, um, I was able to get a really lot, a lot of good data. Um, as in terms of the opaqueness of some of these uh, little micro displays of emotions, I would just say they're, they're not as hard to see as you would think. What they really require is just being there. Okay, ethnography is a grind and you've got to be there and you've to become uh, accepted as not necessarily a member, okay, but an insider to the emotional subculture um, is to be able to notice the little ins and outs um, of how people are feeling and how people feel they should be feeling. So you have, you know this amongst your group of friends. You can hang out with your friends and when someone's a little off, you see it, but outsiders don't, okay? You're at the table, the dinner table, and you're talking to your friends and somebody seems upset and you notice it and it becomes very clear. The server or the waiter doesn't see this, okay? They stream in and out, they collect a little bit of information and then they go away and they leave, all right? But if you're there, you'll see it. It just takes a while and it takes some trust. In my case, um, being a guy uh, afforded me, in a sense, uh, privileges, okay, and that I could help boost their reputation as not being overly biased against men, okay. And so that opened up a lot of doors for me, and I talk about this process of privileging men in, to more extent in, in the latter chapter, but um, that helped me. Uh, asking them questions that they don't normally get asked helped me, and being there, I think that was probably the most important, just the daily grind. You just gotta, you just gotta be there. And when you're there, you'll see life unfold. And in life, there are a lot of interesting stories to tell. Ken Cobb, his new book is Moral Wages, The Emotional Dilemmas of Victim Advocacy and Counseling. Ken, thank you so much for coming by Office Hours. Thank you.